And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, with this kind, excuse me, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, we are working our way through the book of Mark. We're in a sermon series through this, uh, the gospel of Mark, which we've called a purposeful biography, um, a worshipful biography. Yes, it's a history of the life of Jesus. Yes, it describes the events that take place in his life, but it all has a point and a purpose. And that point is to help us believe, to help us trust and delight in all that Jesus has done. And the book of Mark is essentially a book of two halves. The first half, one through eight, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is this guy that has shown up in our world that does these incredible things? And the second half, uh, nine, chapters 9 through 16, Mark is answering the question, what does it mean to follow him? What does it look like to follow this man? So we've already seen that the difference in style and emphasis in the two halves of Mark. But this is going to become more and more pronounced as Jesus' journey takes him closer to Jerusalem, where he will eventually die and be raised again. But we've already seen in the first half, Jesus is victorious. He's triumphant. He's miraculous in the face of the world's difficulties. He walks into a room and every problem immediately gets better. Okay, That's the first half of Mark. The first half of Mark tells us Jesus is king. 
There is not a single thing in this creation, evil spirits, physical illness, even um, natural disasters, that he is not in control of. And in the second half, he's already introduced that he will suffer and that he will die, that he'll be humiliated and shamed, he'll be abandoned. This is a very different picture, but it's the same king. See, Jesus is the king, but as we saw a couple weeks ago, he's the crucified king. And in fact, in the first half of Mark, there's dozens of miracles, but in the second half, there's only two, and we're looking at one of them today. And both of these miracles in the second half of Mark are helping us answer that question, what does it mean to follow this man? What does it mean to follow the king? And this miracle teaches us about faith. Now, if you've been around uh, church or Christianity or open the Bible ever in your life, you know that Christianity is about Okay, we know Jesus through faith. We trust Him through faith. Um, we, if if you know anything about Christianity, you know this. Just have faith. Just believe. But my question for us this morning is, what does that mean? Like, what is faith really? When we say the Christian faith, or when we say trust in Jesus, or when we say believe, what are we talking about? Okay, what does faith mean? What does it look like? And what does it feel like? in this modern world. I mean, are are faith and reason, uh, our logic, kind of opposite from each other? What about faith and doubt? How do they relate? What do we do with with our faith? How do we start to answer this question? Is faith just wishful thinking? Does it matter what you put your faith in, or is the important thing that you just have faith, faith in something? Well, the miracle uh, that we're looking at today addresses and answers some of these questions. Uh, It shows us a few characteristics of real, saving, growing, biblical Christian faith in Jesus. So I'm going to look at a few things here. Real faith, biblical faith, cries out from a broken world. Real faith trusts even from a divided heart. And real faith looks up, not in. All right, that last one will make more sense when we get there. So first, true faith cries out from a broken world. This is a story about a sick boy. Okay, it's a pretty tragic story. I mean, it ends well, but everything up until this point is not a good story. It's not a happy story. This boy is possessed by a spirit that wreaks havoc and chaos and pain in his life. Four different times in these few verses, the symptoms are repeated over and over again to sort of drive home how persistent and how extensive the boy's condition is. Uh, He's rendered mute and deaf. The spirit throws him down on the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. He convulses. He rolls around. And the spirit is intentionally throwing him into water to drown him or fire to burn him. I mean, he's out to destroy this poor kid. And we learn in verse 21 that he's had this condition since childhood. There hasn't been a day where he can remember not being afflicted by this disease, this condition, this possession. And I think it's probably safe to assume, since we're talking about a boy, a young boy, that he's experienced this from childhood, that he didn't like do anything to deserve this, right? He was just born with this. There's no reason, there's no explanation that he's been possessed in this way. His whole life is defined by this suffering, and the father's whole world is consumed with trying to help his son, but nothing has worked. 
See, the physical, spiritual condition of this boy, it's, it's overwhelming to everyone. Everyone in this story, including the disciples, are helpless in the face of it. It's the kind of unexplained suffering, unexplainable difficulty and pain and evil that we can't address on our own and we can't even really start to make sense of on our own. I mean, when we hear stories like this, not just in the Bible, but in our lives, immediately we've got to start asking questions like, why does this happen? I mean, why would God allow this boy, innocent as he is, to experience this for so long? And what what can we possibly do in response to this sort of darkness in the world? Now, okay, caveat, this is not a time or a place to launch into the full-scale discussion about the problem of evil, okay? So we're not going there all the way. But you know the question. You've almost certainly asked yourself this question at some point in your life. Uh, If a good and powerful God exists, why evil? Why suffering? Why pain? Uh, presumably, if he's good, he doesn't want it to happen. And presumably, if he's actually as powerful as Christianity claims, he could stop it and change it at any point that he wants to. How do you account for this kind of suffering in the world? Well, it's interesting. The Bible never directly answers that question. Not, not on a theoretical or philosophical level, anyway. It actually gives us an answer to this question that's much more practical and much more personal, and much more relevant than a philosophical essay would be. In response to tragedy, difficulty, pain, sin, darkness, we don't get philosophical essays from the Bible. We get the presence of God with us through the darkness. Yesterday, we held a funeral here for Wayne Wagner, and um, it was a rich afternoon, great stories, quite the character. We laughed, we cried. Uh, But one of the things that we read in that service was Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What that psalm teaches is our shepherd, Jesus Christ, doesn't explain how the valley got there, Okay? He doesn't um, go into the details explaining why there's a valley, why there's darkness, why there's death. He doesn't answer the question, why darkness? He does something even better. He comes and he joins us in the valley. He walks with us through the shadow of the valley of death. God's answering to suf- answer to suffering, so to speak, is not more information, but more of his presence, more of his love, more of his comfort. He's a present help in danger. He's a present king in times of trouble. He's a present savior in our sin. And faith, what we're looking at today, true, real, saving faith, always begins and ends with a cry of helplessness to our God who is very near. See, while Jesus was up on the mountain, last week we looked at the transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain with with Peter, James, and John, and he's being transfigured figured before them, transformed before them. They see his glory. He's on the mountaintop. In the meantime, the other nine disciples are down here in the valley in the darkness trying to address the pain and the chaos and the difficulty of the world. This father had brought his boy to them, and he says, here, can you help me? And they can't. But why not? Because they were trying to cast out this evil spirit from their own power. 
I mean, they were trying to do it from the resources of their own success. They were trying to do it, we read later, without prayer. In other words, they were trying to fix a broken world without acknowledging the need and dependence that they have on God. And so when Jesus tells them at the end of this story that this kind of spirit only comes out with prayer, he's acknowledging his own deep dependence and his own need on God's power to come crashing into the world and address our suffering and our darkness and our pain. Okay, not to put too fine a point on this, but in times like what we are experiencing this week in the valley, when everything is a bit unstable and uncertain, and when our neighbors are displaced and our town's in danger, and when people are putting their lives at risk to help save our town and our homes, when something as unpredictable as the direction of the wind and the speed of the wind can be the difference between moving back in or losing your property, this chaos, this fragility, um, is an actually, it's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to trust again. It's a reminder that we're not powerful enough to take care of ourselves. It's a reminder that we aren't dependent enough in our own strength to fix the problems with the world, to unwind the damage and to heal what's broken. We aren't, but there's a God that is, and he's actually very, very near to us. See, the most reasonable response to the darkness of our world is to cry out for help to a power from beyond our world. And that's one of the things that this miracle shows us. True faith, biblical faith, the kind of faith that God, the kind of faith that trusts and receives his gifts, always begins with acknowledging our great need and our great dependence on him. True faith looks like a cry of need from a broken world. The second thing we see is that true faith trusts from a divided heart. Now, surprisingly, uh, as we encounter characters throughout the Bible that have faith, faith and trust and belief in God is most commonly displayed in the Bible, uh, not as perfect faith, not even close, but faith that often exists right alongside doubt and unbelief. See, unlike the disciples who are trying to fix a broken world from the resources of their own strength and trying to, like, make it happen, you know, with their own power, the father of this sick boy is the only character in this story who acknowledges his weakness and doesn't know what to do to address this darkness, and so he cries out to Jesus for help. This is a sign of real, authentic faith and trust, a cry for help in the midst of trouble. But... Even though the father's faith is very real, it's also very, very small. Okay, I, lo- I love this story. Uh, his faith is real. He brings his boy to Jesus. He cries out for help. He, he makes a scene. He goes public. Okay, he says, look, Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm casting my hopes on you. Please make it happen. All right, so this is real faith. But it's really, really small faith at the same time. As he comes to Jesus, he hedges his plea for help hard, all right? He's asking, he's definitely asking, but he isn't sure it's going to work. And in verse 22, we read the father says, if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us and help us? And Jesus looks at him and he just says, if you can, do you have who you're talking to? If you can, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? 
Actually, you don't have the beginning of the start of a clue to what I've done because telescopes haven't been invented yet, microscopes haven't been invented yet, theoretical physics hasn't been discovered yet, and you have no idea the galaxies that I've spun into existence and the nebulae that are up there. You have no idea the quarks and the gravitational forces that I built that hold this world together. You have no idea what I've dreamed up and created with just a word from my mouth, if you can. What in the world? What kind of question is that? Get out of here. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. For the one who trusts in me, all things are possible. Because I hold all things in the palm of my hand. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, put your faith in my power and grace and love. You have just trusted in the most powerful, the most loving, the most gracious being at the heart of the universe. And anything, anything is possible. Well, then the father of the boy says what might be the best prayer in the Bible. Okay, this is, this is my favorite prayer in the Bible. This is like a life verse for me. This father of this boy is like my personal patron saint. Okay, this prayer, um, I love this prayer. He says to Jesus in response to the, if you can, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, in other words, Jesus, I believe you, I trust you, I hear your words, I know you're present with me, I know you're good, I trust your promises, I do believe you, But my heart is a stubborn, slow, doubtful, uncertain, sinful heart. I find it very hard to trust you all the way. I find it very hard to have complete faith, certain faith, full faith. I do have faith, but I want to trust you more. And I'm riddled with doubts and distractions. Maybe you are too. Maybe this guy can be your patron saint too, like he is mine. Maybe you trust God's word, but you don't understand how his love and his wrath can both flow out of the same gracious character, right? You have doubts. You don't. Maybe you believe his promises, but you don't understand how his sovereignty doesn't just cancel out your freedom, or your freedom doesn't just cancel out his sovereignty. We can't hold all these things together, and it creates uncertainty and doubt about what he promises to us. Or maybe you trust him, but you don't like the fact of hell. You love heaven, but when he starts to talk about hell, you get really uncomfortable. Or maybe you trust him, but you're just not sure he's actually good all the time. Right? I believe, help my unbelief. And here's the thing, though. Doubt and uncertainty and unbelief, it's not just intellectual. Because faith just doesn't exist up here in our brain. Faith also comes from our heart. Faith also trusts. It's what we love. And so our unbelief, yes, it it expresses itself as intellectual doubts and questions, but it also expresses itself as a heart that is just constantly wandering away from the love of God. We love other things. We trust other stories more than the Bible. We look for other saviors more than Jesus. Our heart is a wandering, unsteady, unfaithful center of love. Our minds doubt, but our hearts doubt too. So yes, we believe in God. We believe in his sovereign, powerful reign, but it's so easy at the same time to put our hope practically in the right political party or the right job or the right amount of money. It's easy to trust in other things. Yes, we believe the Christian story of grace is true, but 
it's also so easy to wake up and try to find our identity in our success or our relationships in addition to God's grace and love. Yes, we believe he's our savior, but we still set out every morning to justify our existence by what we do and what we achieve by our family, our behavior, our adventures. I believe, help my unbelief, our patron saint. I think many people assume faith and doubt are opposites. That tends to be the narrative that we hear. If you believe, you don't have doubt. If you doubt, you don't believe. But right here, we see a man believing and doubting at the very same time. Okay? And he is trusting Jesus from that divided heart. He, and I think if we're honest, this is all of us. Like here, like a lot of the Psalms, um, if you get a chance, read through. It's about Psalm 70 through kind of 85. The author is Asaph. If you look, a Psalm from Asaph. They are just filled with doubts, okay? We're going to go through them someday at this church. We're going to go through some psalms. And um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who suffered from depression himself, said uh, Asaph was probably clinically depressed. I mean, some of his uh, psalms are just like, can you say that to God? Like, can you write that in the Bible? And he's writing these things as worship songs for the people of God, and they're riddled with doubt. They're riddled with questions of unbelief and uncertainty in God's goodness. Here, the psalms... Uh, doubting Thomas after the resurrection. The Bible is full of believers who doubt. It's full of people who trust and don't believe at the same time. But in each case, the doubt actually serves as a doorway and a window to even more faith. I've found over the years, I mean, especially working with college students where these questions are, are live and active and they just keep on coming, Um, that one thing that can actually strengthen our trust in Jesus and his gospel is not to ignore them, not to push away these doubts and these uncertainties, but to take them seriously, to name them, to pray them back to God and realize most of the things we already doubt can already be found in the Bible. Okay, The Bible actually gives us all the doubts that we're ever going to need. And as we pray these doubts to God, he actually grows our heart of trust in him. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, uh, great book, Reason for God. Um, if you haven't read it, it's excellent, but he puts it this way. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing of a smart skeptic. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors too. So here's the thing. Doubt's not the goal, okay? We're not up here preaching doubt. Jesus isn't commending doubt, but it can be a doorway and an avenue to great faith, steady faith, resilient faith. I'd encourage you to bring your doubts and unbelief to God in prayer Bring them to Christian brothers and sisters. There's nothing you can say in this room to anyone in this room that will surprise us or shock us or disqualify you. Whatever doubt or unbelief you have, we've all had them. And as we do this together, it can actually be a source to let God answer that little prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Real faith cries out in need from a broken world. Real faith trusts from a divided heart. But maybe most importantly of all, real faith looks up and not in. All right. The key thing to see from this story, and what's maybe the best prayer in the Bible, in my opinion, 
I believe, help my unbelief, is that real saving faith is not at the end of the day dependent on the strength or the endurance or the certainty or the purity of our own faith or the amount of faith we have. It's entirely dependent on the object of our faith. It does matter what we put our faith in. All faiths are not created equal, okay? The object of our faith is what makes faith work. In response to this fragile, halfway doubting faith, Jesus heals this boy. I mean, he transforms his life, right? From health or from illness to health like that. The father's life is transformed. Over time, the disciples' lives are transformed. Your life can be transformed by putting your faith and trust in King Jesus too. But none of these people who experienced this gracious transformation had perfect faith. The disciples didn't even pray that day, right? They just forgot to pray. They were trying to do healing miracles and forgot to pray, okay? Um, The father at least prayed, but he hedged his prayers hard, right? Like, if you can maybe do something, Jesus. I mean, none of this is model faith. And yet, all were healed, all were saved, all were transformed. Why? What makes faith work? Faith doesn't work because our belief is strong and certain and enduring, but because the object of our belief is strong and certain and enduring. In that way, it's a lot like rock climbing, okay? Um, I used to do a lot of rock climbing. I haven't in years. But uh, at the local crag at our house, uh, kind of, you know, a few miles from our house in central Missouri, there's a 70-foot limestone wall, and that's the one we would go to all the time. And uh, my favorite route was this... About a 5'9", so it wasn't too hard, but you'd go up, and you'd get to the top, and the final move was what climbers call a dyno, okay? Some of you know what this is. Uh, the, le- the top of the climb was about two feet behind your head and about two feet up. So to get to the top, to top out, you've got to launch off the rock, and all four of your limbs are off the rock for a minute while you're suspended in midair, and then you reach for the top, and you try to slap the top and stick the landing, all right? About half the time you stick the landing and about half the time your palms are too sweaty and you slip right off the rock, all right? So this, we've done this, we did this hundreds of times. It's a pretty wild feeling, 70 feet off the ground, jumping off the face of the rock. But here's the question. Am I a crazy man for doing this? No. Wrong answer. Wrong answer. And this is why I'm not a crazy man, because I'm not doing this on my own, am I? I am tied into a rope that can, uh, that, that can hold a school bus, okay? We have put three anchors in the rock that is triple redundancy so the system cannot fail. Me and my belay partner have quadruple checked our figure eight and our harnesses. This system is bomb-proof, and I am totally safe as I launch off that rock, okay? There, I cannot fall as I go off the top of that cliff. In fact, I'm safer as I let go with all four of my limbs jumping for the top than I am on my drive home on the highway after we go rock climbing, okay? Um, I am totally safe. Um, And it's the fact, it's the objective fact of the safety of that rope that secures me and keeps me safe. Now, here's the thing, though. That doesn't mean I didn't have my doubts, right? That doesn't mean that at times I was up there and I didn't feel the fear in my stomach or I didn't uh, question, how in the world did I get here? Why am I doing this again? How come I'm not holding on to any rock right now and I'm 70 feet off the ground? Those questions are live questions, but they don't endanger my safety at all. I'm totally secure because of the object that is actually keeping me safe. 
See, the strength of my faith in the rope doesn't matter. What matters is if it's safe. And what's actually going to save me if I don't stick that landing isn't how much I believe, my certainty that day, what I feel about it, but whether that rope is actually safe. The reason Jesus' grace flows to us through faith is not because our faith is great or strong or certain all the time. Very much the opposite. It flags, we doubt, we fear, we forget. No, his grace works. His grace flows to us through faith because he is great and he is strong and he is enduring. And if we're connected to him, if we're tied to him, if we're united to him in faith, then our, the, the, our certainty doesn't matter because the object of our faith is solid and it will never, ever let us down. So when the author of Hebrew writes, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, he is giving you the formula to grow as a Christian. He's giving you the roadmap to increase in belief. He's telling the secret to grow up in grace. We're not going to get more confidence in God's promises by looking in all the time and seeing if we trust well today or if we have a lot of doubts today or if it's like 50-50 today. We're going to grow in confidence as we look up and out and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, this wonderful thing happens, okay? Uh, The more we put his word to the test and the more we lean on his promises of joy and hope and salvation, the more we live out of our own weakness and need in dependence on him, the more you get the feel for what it looks like to trust in his power and not your own, the freer and the more fun faith becomes. I mean, if you know you can't fall, not really, not ultimately, not in any eternal sort of way, if you know you're tied into something eternally safe, then the risks that you can take out there in the world obeying Jesus don't become fear-based, don't become full of doubt. They become a joy. I mean, you can launch off that rock into space knowing you're tied in to the eternal king who will keep you safe no matter what happens in your life. I believe, help my unbelief. What a prayer. Can you imagine waking up every day and starting your day with that prayer and then ending your day with that prayer, and letting that prayer become the liturgy and the, uh, the, the habit of your heart as you grow in trust in Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for holding on to us as we sang earlier. Thank you that uh, even if our faith is not perfect, and we wake up and we doubt and we trust and our heart wanders in unbelief to all kinds of other false promises of joy and hope, as we're tied into you, we are eternally secure. Jesus, fix our eyes on you. Help our faith grow more and more confident and certain that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are for us, that you love us, and that our relationship is based in your grace. Jesus, thanks. For your word to us this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen.